Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. In 1972, Academy Award winner William Goldman wrote The Princess Bride. It took 15 years before director Rob Reiner brought it to the screen. Now critics and audiences agree it was worth the wait. Joel Siegel says The Princess Bride is thrilling, exciting, very funny, and absolute magic. Don't miss it. People Magazine calls it an instant classic, the good time movie of the year. Just the right mix of hilarity and heartbreak. The entire cast is superb, but the funniest is Billy Crystal. Bill Harris says The Princess Bride is one of the best movies of the year, an absolute gem. One of the funniest and most charming comedies I've seen in a long time, says Roger Ebert. And Siskel and Ebert give it two big thumbs up. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. The Princess Bride, rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Princess Bride from 1987. The studio was 20th Century Fox, and the release date was September 25th, 1987. The running time, 98 minutes, and it was rated PG. The budget was $16 million, the box office took in $31 million, making it the 41st ranked movie of 1987. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 97% fresh from 79 reviews. Their consensus is a delightfully postmodern fairy tale. The Princess Bride is a deft, intelligent mix of swashbuckling, romance, and comedy that takes an age-old damsel in distress story and makes it fresh. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars. Here's his review. The Princess Bride begins as a story that a grandfather is reading out of a book. But already the movie has a spin on it, because the grandfather is played by Peter Falk, and in the distinctive quality of his voice, we can detect a certain edge. His voice seems to contain a measure of cynicism about fairy tales, a certain awareness that there are a lot more things on heaven and earth that have been dreamed of by the Brothers Grimm. The story he tells is about Buttercup, a beautiful princess played by Robin Wright, who scornfully orders around a farm boy played by Carrie Elwes until the day she realizes, thunderstruck, that she loves him. She wants to live happily ever after with him, but then evil forces intervene, and she is kidnapped and taken far away across the Lost Lands while he is killed. Is this story going to have a lot of kissing in it, Falk's grandson asks? Well, it's definitely going to have a lot of screaming eels. The moment the princess is taken away by the agents of the evil Prince Humperdinck, played by Chris Sarandon, The Princess Bride reveals itself as a sly parody of sword and sorcery movies, a film that somehow manages to exist on two levels at once. While younger viewers will sit spellbound at the thrilling events on screen, adults, I think, will be laughing a lot. In its own peculiar way, The Princess Bride resembles This is Spinal Tap, an earlier film by the same director, Rob Reiner. Both films are funny not only because they contain comedy, but because Reiner does justice to the underlying form of his story. Spinal Tap looked and felt like a rock documentary, and then it was funny. The Princess Bride looks and feels a lot like the movie Legend, or any of those quasi-heroic epic fantasies, and then it goes for the laughs. Part of the secret is that Reiner never stays with the same laugh very long. There are a lot of people for his characters to meet as they make their long journey, and most of them are completely off the wall. There is, for example, a band of three brigands led by Wallace Shawn as a scheming little conniver, 
and including Andre the Giant as Fezzik the Giant, a crusher who may not necessarily have a heart of gold. It is Sean who tosses the princess to the screaming eels with great relish. Another funny episode involves Manny Pentankin as Inigo Montoya, a heroic swordsman with a secret. And the funniest sequence in the film stars Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, both unrecognizable behind makeup, as an ancient wizard and crone who specialize in bringing the dead back to life. The Princess Bride was adapted by William Goldman from his own novel, which he says was inspired by a book he read as a child, but which seems to have been cheerfully transformed by his wicked adult imagination. It is filled with good-hearted fun, with performances by actors who seem to be smacking their lips and by a certain true innocence that survive all of Reiner's satire. And, also, it does have kissing in it. And that's the end of Reviewer's Review. Now, as a kid, The Princess Bride was played a lot in my household due to my sister having a penchant for watching her favorite movies and TV shows incessantly. Now, I enjoy The Princess Bride as much as anyone, but four or five times a week is a bit excessive, as you wish. During yet another viewing back in the late 80s, I remember my dad walking in during the beginning of the movie when Peter Falk is reading the story to Fred Savage, and then my dad said, hey, it's Columbo, reading to Kevin Arnold. (laughs) Well, Kevin Arnold being, of course, from the Wonder Years television show. As a matter of fact, I really didn't sit down and enjoy the film until I saw it on video during an after-school event that they were showing the film one weekday, likely in 1989. Then the film all kind of made sense to me and forever a favorite of mine. All right, let's get into the making of the film. So Rob Reiner was already aware of the book the film was based on, which was written by William Goldman and called The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version. Carl Reiner, which is Rob's iconic father, was doing a play on Broadway called Something Different in the late 60s, and Goldman was going to write a nonfiction book based on that season of Broadway. Goldman had two young daughters at the time, and he asked them what he should write his next book about. One daughter said that he should write the book about a princess, and the other said it should be about a bride. And there you have it. A few years later, when Goldman finished writing his book for The Prince's Bride, he gave a draft to Carl Reiner, thinking that he might want to make a movie out of it. Carl wasn't sure what to make out of the story and passed on it. But Carl gave Rob the book since Rob had enjoyed Goldman's past novels and ended up absolutely loving The Princess Bride. Years later, Rob decided he wanted to make a film adaptation, not realizing that the other directors and producers had attempted to adapt the film, but to no avail, since it was so offbeat, along with the bad breaks where the studio producer would be fired or leave the company, or the company itself would go out of business, and this lasted almost a decade after Goldman sold the rights to the book. Directors like Richard Lester, Francois Truffaut, Robert Redford and Norman Jewison all tried to adapt this film to no avail. Even Christopher Reeve at one point was going to play the Wesley character. Goldman eventually bought back the rights to the book after so many failed tries. He now owned the book and the screenplay again. It was legendary producer Norman Lear who ended up being the producer and financing the film. Of course, Reiner worked with Lear on the classic television show All in the Family in the 1970s. Goldman also adapted the screenplay from his book, which is why the dialogue in the film is so good. At the time of filming, Rob Reiner had only directed two films. The aforementioned This is Spinal Tap and the romantic comedy The Sure Thing. And The Princess Bride is a combination of both genres, ironically. During the making of The Princess Bride, he released his third film, Stand By Me. To play Wesley, Reiner had seen a film called Lady Jane in 1986, and Carrie Elwes was the co-lead with Helena Bonham Carter. 
He had the perfect look to play Wesley, along with the swashbuckler feel of early actors like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Errol Flynn. Little did Reiner know that Elwes also had a great sense of humor and wit that was necessary for the role. Many different actresses auditioned for Buttercup, including Uma Thurman, Meg Ryan, Sean Young, Susie Amos, Courtney Cox, Alexander Paul, and Whoopi Goldberg. Robin Wright was on a soap opera called Santa Barbara at the time. She came in late and was one of the final actresses to read, and she nailed the audition and was the perfect Princess Buttercup and looked exactly how the part was written. Christopher Guest had already worked with Reiner on This Is Spinal Tap and was handpicked by Reiner for the Count Tyron Rugen role. According to Reiner, if he had it his way, Guest would be in every single movie that he ever made. For Fezzik, according to Reiner, the only human being on the planet for the role was Andre the Giant because he really was a giant. William Goldman said he actually wrote the role with Andre in mind because he would see Andre wrestle at Madison Square Garden in the 70s and 80s. Because of Andre's wrestling schedule, he wasn't immediately available, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was the second choice. But with a small budget of the film, his salary would have been far too much. The casting director had auditioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Lou Ferrigno, but once Andre became available, he was the set choice for the role. Liam Neeson also auditioned, but he was considered far too short at six foot four. Everyone loved hanging out with Andre on and off set, and he could drink wine like nobody else in the world. Andre had said at the time that wrestling was similar to acting, but with wrestling you were on your own and there were no retakes. But according to Reiner, Andre had terrific acting instincts. Andre also appreciated being in one place for many weeks at a time, as opposed to his wrestling career where he was never in one place for longer than one to two days. Peter Falk, who was about 60 at the time of filming, approached Rob Reiner and, and said he wasn't sure if he looked old enough to play the grandfather part and asked if they should put makeup on him. So Reiner agreed to do some prosthetics, not having the heart to tell Falk that he was definitely old enough to play a grandparent. Unfortunately, the prosthetics looked terrible, and according to Reiner, he looked like a burn victim. But Falk was the perfect choice. He was someone you would immediately like and appreciate. It would be like having James Stewart as the grandfather. He was an immediate presence. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins with a young boy, that's Fred Savage, and he's sick in bed playing video games. Now the amusing part is watching the painfully slow Nintendo baseball game that I remember playing as a kid and thinking it was the greatest thing in the world, even though the pitchers threw as fast as, like, let's say an Ephus pitch, and all the runners were slower than Benji Molina on a good day. You'll have to look him up if you don't know what I'm talking about. The boy's grandfather, Peter Falk, comes over to cheer him up. feeling any better? A little bit. Guess what? What? Your grandfather's here. Mom, can't you tell me I'm sick? You're sick. That's why he's here. He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how are you sicky? Huh? I think I'll leave you two pals alone. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. 
a book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Is it got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Your voter confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to her. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come boy. Fetch me that picture. As you wish. trying to trick me and where's the sports is this a kissing book wait just wait when's it get good keep your shirt on let me read in just like a columbo episode there's always something more when i was a kid i was just like fred savage i wasn't thrilled initially by watching this film as old world fairy tales weren't my cup of tea but quickly this film changes that perception which is the brilliance of the story and direction They knew to start the film by having a modern take would draw on the folks that were apprehensive about watching a fairy tale. So while Fred Savage would go on to be best known as Kevin Arnold on the hit TV series The Wonder Years a year later, this was one of his first roles on film. Wesley, played by Carrie Elwes, decides to leave the farm to go off overseas to earn his own fortune in order to marry his one true love, Princess Buttercup, played by Robin Wright. Well, she was just Buttercup then. Sorry. However, Wesley never made it back overseas as his ship was attacked by the dread pirate Roberts. The news that came back to Buttercup was that Wesley was killed in the attack. Buttercup vowed to never love again. We fast forward five years and we hear the announcement of the bride-to-be for Prince Humperdinck, played by Chris Sarandon. And his bride will be a commoner woman. She won't be existing royalty. 
by no choice of hers, Buttercup is selected by Humperdinck as the Princess Bride. She, of course, does not love Humperdinck and finds solace by riding her horse in the country. It's here where she runs into three lost circus performers, or so they say, Vizzini, played by Wallace Shawn, Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, and Inigo Bontoya, played by Mandy Pentankin. Despite Humperdinck's reassurance that she would grow to love him, the only joy she found was in her daily ride. my lady we are but poor lost circus performers is there a village nearby there is nothing nearby not for miles then there will be no one to hear you scream ah! what's that you're ripping it's fabric from the uniform of an army officer of gilder who's gilder the country across the sea, the sworn enemy of Florin. Go! Once the horse reaches the castle, the fabric will make the prince suspect the Gilderians have abducted his love. When he finds their body dead on the Gilder frontier, his suspicions will be totally confirmed. You never say anything about killing anyone. I've hired you to help me start a war. It's a prestigious line of work with a long and glorious tradition. I just don't think he's right. Killing an innocent girl. Am I going mad? Or did the word think escape your lips? You were not hired for your brains, you hippopotamic landmass. I agree with Fisick. Oh, the sot has spoken. What happens to her is not truly your concern. I will kill her. And remember this. Never forget this. When I found you, you were so slobbering drunk, you couldn't buy brandy. And you, friendless. Brainless, helpless, hopeless. Do you want me to send you back to where you were? Unemployed in Greenland? That Vicini, he can fuss. Fuss, fuss. You like to scream at us? Probably he means no harm. He's really very short on charm. You have a great gift for Ryan. Yes, yes. Some of the time. Enough of that! Fuzzy, are there rocks ahead? If they are, we all be dead. No more rhymes now, I mean it! Anybody want to feel it? <laughs> and so begins the journey of the three outlaws, though it's really only Vizzini that's truly bad. Buttercup tries to escape while the three are distracted by another boat by jumping overboard and swimming for safety. We'll reach the cliffs by dawn. Why are you doing that? Making sure nobody's follow us. That would be inconceivable. Despite what you think, you will be caught. And when you are, the prince will see you all hanged. Of all the necks on this boat, Highness, the one you should be worrying about is your own.
Stop doing that. We can all relax. It's almost over. You are sure nobody's follow us? As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. No one in Gilder knows what we've done, and no one in Florin could have gotten here so fast. Out of curiosity, why do you ask? No reason. Suddenly, I just happened to look behind us and something is there. What? some local fishermen out for a pleasure cruise at night through eel-infested waters. Oh, oh. Go in! Get after her! I don't swim. I only dog paddle. Fear ah! left! 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 You know what that sound is, Highness? Those are the shrieking eels. If you don't believe me, just wait. They always grow louder when they're about to feed on human flesh. If you swim back now, I promise no harm will come to you. I doubt you'll get such an offer from the eels. doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? The eel doesn't get her. Now, I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. I was nervous. Well, maybe I was a little bit concerned, but that's not the same thing. Because we can stop now if you want. No, you could read a little bit more if you want. Do you know what that sound is, Highness? Those are the shrieking eels. Well, past that, Grandpa. You read it already. Oh, oh my goodness, I did. I'm sorry. Beg your pardon. All right, all right. Let's see. She was in the water. The eel was coming after her. She was frightened. The eel started to charge her, and then... Put her down! Just put her down! I think he's getting closer. He's no concern of ours. Sail on. I suppose you think you're brave, don't you? Only compared to some. Faster! I thought I was going faster. You were supposed to be this colossus. You were this great legendary thing, and yet he gains. Well, I'm killing three people. And he got on himself. I do not accept excuses. I'm just going to have to find myself a new giant, that's all. Look! He's right on top of us! What are fish using the same wind we are using? Whoever he is, he's too late! See? The cliffs of insanity! Hurry up! Move the thing! And that other thing! Move it! We're safe. Only Fezzik is strong enough to go up our way. He'll have to sail around for hours till he finds a harbor.
He's climbing the rope. And he's gaining on us. Inconceivable. Faster! I thought I was going faster. You were supposed to be this colossus. You were this great legendary thing, and yet he gains. Well, I'm carrying three people, and he got only himself. I do not accept excuses. I'm just going to have to find myself a new giant, that's all. Don't say that, Vincini, please. Did I make it clear that your job is at stake? The man following them is dressed in all black, and his face is covered, sort of like Zorro. Vizzini instructs Montoya to take care of the mystery man, as he's a fencing master. Vizzini and Fezzik will go ahead with the princess. Montoya is overconfident, says he'll fight left-handed, since he doesn't want the duel to end too quickly. I promise I will not kill you until you reach the top. That's very comforting, but I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. I hate waiting. I could give you my word as a Spaniard. No good. I've known too many Spaniards. Is there any way you trust me? Nothing comes to mind. I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya. You will reach the top alive. Throw me the rope. But you don't by any chance happen to have six fingers on your right hand? Do you always begin conversations this way? My father was slaughtered by a six-fingered man. Was a great sword maker, my father. When the six-fingered man appeared and requested a special sword, my father took the job. He slept a year before he was done. 
I've never seen its equal. Six Finger Man returned and demanded it. But at one tenth his promised price. My father refused. Without a word, the Six Finger Man slashed him through the heart. I love my father. So naturally, I challenge his murderer to a duel. I fail. Six Finger Man leave me alive. But he gave me this. How old were you? I was 11 years old. When I was strong enough, I dedicated my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say, Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You've done nothing but study swordplay. More pursue than a study lately. You see, I cannot find it. It's been 20 years now I started to lose confidence. I just work for Ficina to pay the bills. It's not a lot of money in revenge. Well, I... I certainly hope you find him someday. You're ready, then? Whether I am or not, you've been more than fair. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. Again. Bonetti's defense against me, huh? I thought it fitting, considering the rocky terrain. Naturally. You must expect me to attack with Capaferro. Naturally. But I find that Tibble cancels out Capaferro. Don't you? Unless the enemy has a study, he's a gripper. Which I have. You are wonderful. Thank you. I've worked hard to become so. I admitted you are better than I am. Then why are you smiling? Because I know something you don't know. And what is that? I am not left-handed. Hmm. You're amazing. I ought to be after 20 years. Oh, there's something I ought to tell you. Tell me. I'm not left-handed either. Consequence? I must know. Get used to disappointment.
kill me quickly. I would as soon destroy a stained glass window as an artist like yourself. However, since I can't have you following me either. <clears throat> Please understand, I hold you in the highest respect. The masked man leaves Montoya alive but knocks him out. By the way, the scene is terrific to watch with the acrobatics and the quick sword play. Neither Carrie Elwes nor Mandy Patinkin had fenced before and really worked hard prior to shooting to get their sword play up to snuff, and they really did an amazing job in the film if you watch their gracefulness. Both actors watched classic film sword fights and would practice over and over with a coach. Amazingly, neither actor was injured during the sword fight. And obviously, the acrobatics were done by stuntmen, but all the fencing was done by Elwes and Patankin. Vizzini sees the masked man running down the hill, which of course is inconceivable to him. The word that would become a favorite of many kids growing up in the 80s. Vizzini instructs Fezzik to take out the masked man while he runs off with the princess. on purpose. I don't have to miss. I believe you. So what happens now? We face each other as God intended. Sportsmanlike. No tricks, no weapons. Skill again, skill along. You mean you'll put down your rock and I'll put down my sword and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people? I can kill you now. Frankly, I think the odds are slightly in your favor at hand fighting. It's not my fault being the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. Look, are you just fiddling around with me or what? I just want you to feel you're doing well. I hate for people to die on the hands. You're quick. And a good thing, too. Were you wearing a mask? Were you burned with acid or something like that? Oh, no, it's just they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. I just feel it when you give me so much trouble. Why is that? Do you think? Well, I haven't fought just one person for so long. I've been specializing in groups, battling gangs for local charities, that kind of thing. Why should that make such a difference? When, you see, you use different moves when you're fighting. After does it, people, then we only have to be one. I do not envy you the headache you will have when you awake. But in the meantime, rest well and dream of large women. Now it's time for the masked man to take on Vicini. He will not be as merciful with Vizzini, nor should he. So, it is down to you, and it is down to me. 
if you wish you're dead, by all means, keep moving forward. That may explain. There's nothing to explain. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Perhaps an arrangement can be reached? There will be no arrangement, and you're killing her. Well, if there can be no arrangement, then we are at an impasse. I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. You're that smart. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? In that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. For the princess? To the death? I accept. Good. Then pour the wine. Inhale this, but do not touch. I smell nothing. What you do not smell is called Iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the more deadly poisons known to man. Where's the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely. Because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked. You've given everything away. I know where the poison is. Then make your choice. I will. And I choose. What in the world can that be? What? Where? I don't see anything. Oh, well, I, I could have sworn I saw something. I, uh, no matter. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass and you from yours.
<laughs> you guessed wrong. You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> Who are you? I'm no one to be trifled with. That is all you ever need know. To think, all that time it was your cup that was poisoned. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. Inconceivable! In the meantime, hot on the trail of the masked man and the princess is Prince Humperdinck. Rest, Highness. I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the dread pirate Roberts. Admit it! With pride. What can I do for you? You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me? You killed my love. It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly, rich and scabby? No. A farm boy. Poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. On the high seas, your ship attacked. And the dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. You mock my pain! Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I remember this farm boy of yours, I think. This will be, what, five years ago? Does it bother you to hear? Nothing you can say would upset me. He died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. He simply said, please. Please, I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him. True love, he replied. then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness. I can only assume he meant you. You should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you really are. And what am I? Faithfulness he talked of, madam. Your enduring faithfulness. Now tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince that same hour or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once. Never do it again. I died that day. You can die, too, for all I care. Oh. As you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley. What have I done? Ow. Oh. 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 Disappeared. He must have seen us closing in, which might account for his panicking and error. Unless I'm wrong, and I'm never wrong, they are headed dead into the fire swamp.
If you want, I can fly. I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? Well, you were dead. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. Of course, the viewer knew all along that the masked man was Wesley, just like Clark Kent simply putting on a pair of glasses. We briefly cut back to the Wonder Years in Columbo, where the young boy wants to hear about the fire swamp, not kissing. So Grandpa obliges as he wishes. Well, one thing I will say, fire swamp certainly does keep you on your toes. will all soon be but a happy memory. It's Robert's ship Revenge is anchored at the far end. And I, as you know, am Robert's. But how's that possible, since he's been marauding 20 years and you only left me five years ago? I myself am often surprised at life's little quirks. See, what I told you before about saying please was true. It intrigued Robert's, as did my descriptions of your beauty. Finally, Robert's decided something. He said... All right, Wesley. Never had a valet. You can try it for tonight. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Three years he said that. Good night, Wesley. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. It was a fine time for me. I was learning to fence, fight, anything anyone would teach me. And Roberts and I eventually became friends. And then it happened. What? Go on. Well, Roberts had grown so rich, he wanted to retire. So he took me to his cabin told me a secret. I am not the Dread Pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited the ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts, just as you will inherit it from me. The man I inherited it from was not the real Dread Pirate Roberts either. His name was Cumberbund. The real Roberts has been retired 15 years and living like a king in Patagonia. Thank you. Then he explained that the name was the important thing for inspiring the necessary fear. You see, no one would surrender to the Dread Pirate Wesley. So we sailed ashore, took on an entirely new crew, and he stayed aboard for a while as first mate, all the time calling me Roberts. And once the crew believed, I, he left the ship, and I had been Roberts ever since. Except now that we're together, I shall retire and hand the name over to someone else. Is everything clear to you? Buttercup falls into some quicksand, and Wesley quickly grabs a vine and jumps down after her. After about 20 seconds, Wesley and Buttercup reappear from the quicksand pit. However, their plight is far from over, as they must battle the R-O-U-S's, the rodents of unusual size. What are the three terrors of the fire swamp? One, the flame spurt. No problem. There's a popping sound proceeding each. We can avoid that. Two, the lightning sand. But you were clever enough to discover what that looks like, so in the future we can avoid that too. Wesley, what about the R.O.U.S.s? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. <laughs> Famous last words. 
I remember as a kid that this was, you know, quote-unquote the scariest scene with the giant fangs. Wesley eventually rolls the giant rodent into a blasting flame, then finishes it off with his sword. They leave the fire pit battered and bruised, but alive. By the way, those rodents were not mechanical, but actual little people in costumes. Also, the growling noises from the huge rodents were done by Rob Reiner. Unfortunately, they are not out of the woods yet, literally, as Humperdinck and his men arrive. We did it. Is that so terrible? Surrender. You mean wish to surrender to me? Very well, I accept. I give you full marks for bravery. Don't make yourself a fool. Ah, but how will you capture us? We know the secrets of the fire swamp. We can live there quite happily for some time, so whenever you feel like dying, feel free to visit. I tell you once again, surrender. Will not happen. For the last time, surrender. Death first. Will you promise not to hurt him? What was that? What was that? If we surrender, and I return with you, will you promise not to hurt this man? May I live a thousand years and never hunt again. He is a sailor on the pirate ship Revenge. Promise to return him to his ship. I swear it will be done. Once we're out of sight, take him back to Florin and throw him in the pit of despair. I swear it will be done. I thought you were dead once, and it almost destroyed me. I could not bear it if you died again. Not when I could save you. Come, sir. We must get you to your ship. We are men of action. Lies do not become us. Well spoken, sir. What is it? You have six fingers on your right hand. Someone was looking for you. Yes, the same six-fingered man who killed Montoya's father. His name is Count Tyrone Rugen, played by Christopher Guest. The Count knocks out Wesley, and he's taken to the pit of despair, where we meet the pit keeper, the albino, and he offers this gem. Where am I? The pit of despair. Don't even think... (laughs) Don't even think about trying to escape. The chains are far too thick. And don't dream of being rescued either. The only way in is secret. Only the Prince of the Count and I know how to get in and out. Then I'm here till I die? Till I kill you. Then why bother curing me? (sighs) The Prince and the Count always insist on everyone being healthy before they're broken. So it's to be torture. I can cope with torture. Don't believe me? You survived the fire swamp. You must be very brave. But nobody withstands the machine. 
<laughs> so the albino is played by Mel Smith, who I remember as the hotel clerk in London in the European Vacation movie. In the book, Wesley goes through the zoo of death, but it was changed to the pit of despair for this film on a limited budget. So Mel Smith later confessed to never having watched his performance in this film due to the painful experience involving the filming of his role. The character required him to wear color contact lenses, and unknown to Smith and the costume department at the time, he was actually allergic to the lens solution used. This meant that Smith was in constant pain and discomfort throughout filming. Hence, he was reluctant to relive this memory. So while Wesley recuperates in order to be killed, <laughs> there is other pressing news around the village. The king died that very night. And before the following dawn, Buttercup and Humperdinck were married. And at noon, she met her subjects again, this time as their queen. My father's final words were... Hold it, hold it, Grandpa. You read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck. She marries Wesley. Deserve it. After all that Wesley did for her, if she didn't marry him, it wouldn't be fair. Well, who says life is fair? Where is that written? Life isn't always fair. I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. Now get it right. Do you want me to go on with this? Yes. All right, then. No more interruptions. At noon, she met her subjects again, this time as their queen. My father's final words were, Love her as I loved her, and there will be joy. I present to you your queen, Queen Buttercup. Why do you do this? Because you had love in your hands and you gave it up. But they would have killed Wesley if I hadn't done it. Your true love lives and you marry another. True love saved her in the fire swamp and she treated it like garbage. And that's what she is, the queen of refuse. So bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. Boo! Boo! Rubbish! Filth! Slime! Muck! Boo! 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 It was ten days till the wedding. The king still lived, but Buttercup's nightmares were growing steadily worse. See? Didn't I tell you she'd never marry that rotten humperdink? Yes, you're very smart. Shut up. Buttercup rushes into Humperdinck's quarters to tell him that she will not marry him and only loves Wesley. Humperdinck then acts like he will be a gracious loser and allow the two lovers a chance to marry. But we know that will never happen, as we hear from a conversation between the Count and the Prince. Wesley's got his strength back. I'm starting him on the machine tonight. Tyrone, you know how much I love watching you work. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder and gilded a frame for it. I'm swamped. Get some rest. If you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything.
beautiful, isn't it? It took me half a lifetime to invent it. I'm sure you've discovered my deep and abiding interest in pain. At present, I'm writing the definitive work on the subject. So I want you to be totally honest with me on how the machine makes you feel. This being our first try, I'll use the lowest setting. As you know, the concept of the suction pump is centuries old. Well, really, that's all this is, except that instead of sucking water, I'm sucking life. I've just sucked one year of your life away. I might one day go as high as five, but I really don't know what that would do to you. So let's just start with what we have. What did this do to you? Tell me. And remember, this is for posterity, so be honest. How do you feel? <laughs> Interesting. I still think there was a missed opportunity to turn up the torture machine to 11 because I'm not opposed to cheap laughs, of course. Anyway, watch This is Spinal Tap if you uh, missed that connection. All right, there's about 30 minutes left, and I don't want to spoil the rest of the film for those poor souls that have not seen this film or haven't watched it in a while. Will Wesley and Buttercup be able to live happily ever after? And what about Montoya and Fezzik? Will Montoya be able to avenge the death of his father? And what about Kevin Arnold and Columbo? I mean, the young boy and his grandfather. Will the boy appreciate the greatness of the story that was told to him? Well, of course, it's all answered in this fabulous and timeless film. It's a celebration of great storytelling that viewers of any age can enjoy. I also love how the film will toggle back and forth between the reading of the story with the grandfather and his grandson and the tale. It's, it's a perfect balance. But I can't leave you without this great scene with Miracle Max and his wife, played by Billy Crystal and Carol Kane. Go away! What? What? Are you the Miracle Max who worked for the king all those years? The king's thinking son fired me. And thank you so much for bringing up such a painful subject. While you're at it, why don't you give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it? We're closed! Beat it, or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. We need a miracle. It's very important. Look, I'm retired. And besides, why would you want someone the king's stinking son fired? I might kill whoever you want to meet the miracle. He's already dead. He is, eh? I'll take a look. Bring him in. I've seen worse. Sir? Yes. Sir? Huh? We're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, Sonny. You rush a miracle man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? 65. <laughs> I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This is noble, sir. 
His wife is crippled. Children are on the brink of starvation. Are you a rotten liar? I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cram? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. so important. What you got here, that's worth living for. True love. True love, you heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yes, honey. True love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. They're so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said, to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards, and he cheated. Liar! 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 Get back, witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore! You never had it so good. To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say My another God. word, Valerie. He's afraid. Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. What? Humperdinck? Ah! Humperdinck! Ah! Humperdinck! Ah! Humperdinck! Ah! Humperdinck! 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 I'm not Humperdinck! listening! Love lies expiring, and you don't have the decency to say why you won't help. Nobody's hearing nothing. Humperdinck! Humperdinck! This is Buttercup's true love. If you heal him, he will stop Humperdinck's wedding. Shut I make him better, Humperdinck suffers. Humiliations galore. I did a lick That is a noble cause. Give me the 65. I'm on the job. That's a miracle pill. The chocolate coating makes it go down easier, but you have to wait 15 minutes for full potency. And you shouldn't go in swimming after for at least what? An, an hour. Yeah, an a hour. good hour. Yeah. Thank you for everything. Okay. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye. So Crystal's character of Miracle Max is actually based on Mel Brooks's character from the 2,000-year-old man skits that he, of course, did with Carl Reiner from the early 1960s. Crystal really enjoyed playing the character and said it felt natural to him since he said he had relatives that kind of looked like Max. And when the makeup artist asked what Max should look like, Crystal said a combination of Casey Stengel, which was the great old baseball manager, and Crystal's grandmother. <laughs> Also, without trying to give anything away, here's another classic scene with British comic actor Peter Cook. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, 
that dream within a dream then love, true love, will follow you forever. So treasure your wife. Skip to the end. Have you the win? If you didn't know, Cook used to perform as a duo in the 1960s with Dudley Moore. All right, there's lots of fun facts, so let's get to them. On the first day of shooting, the first scene shot was when Robin Wright's dress caught on fire and it didn't go well as Wright was burned in the process. Not as she wished. So Wright's flawless English accent, even though she was American, came by honestly because her stepfather was English. Like a lot of underappreciated films, it didn't do extremely well at the box office. It wasn't a flop, but it was a film that people grew to find on home video or cable. Part of this initial box office softness was due to the lack of proper marketing, because really it's an offbeat film. And if you sell it as a traditional fairy tale, some people, just like me as a young boy, might have been turned off by that. Now, as I've said in many past episodes, thank goodness for the advent of the VCR, because so many films were discovered due to home video rentals. Underappreciated films that were missed, for whatever reasons, gained new life. Today, The Princess Bride is considered an all-time classic for many film lovers. Because Andre the Giant had such terrible back problems, he couldn't lift anything without an assistance from pulley cables. When he was asked what his favorite thing about making the film was, Andre said immediately, Nobody looks at me. He felt like he was treated as an equal without people staring at him because of his large size. So Mark Knopfler from the band Dire Straits performs the music and score from this film. When Reiner asked him to create the soundtrack, Knopfler said he would, but on one condition. Reiner would have to have the same hat he wore in Spinal Tap and have it appear in the film. Now Knopfler later said that he was only joking, but a similar hat does appear in the scenes in the room with Fred Savage and Peter Falk. When Count Rugen hits Wesley over the head, Carrie Elwes told Christopher Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Guest hit him hard enough to shut down production for a day when Elwes went to the hospital. So Robin Wright and Carrie Elwes were smitten with each other during filming, naturally helping their chemistry in the movie. Elwes said that he couldn't concentrate on much of anything after that first encounter with Robin. Mandy Pentankin claims that the only injury he sustained during the entire filming of this movie was a bruised rib due to his laughing during the scenes with Billy Crystal. His attempting to hold back his laughter is kind of obvious from his facial expressions during the line, This is noble, sir. Rob Reiner left the set during Billy Crystal's scenes because he would laugh so hard that he would feel nauseated. Before filming, Wallace Shawn, who plays Vizzini, had to come to understand that he was the second choice for the part after Danny DeVito. Although there is some confusion about whether DeVito was ever really seriously pursued, he became convinced that he was wrong for the role and in danger of being fired at any moment. He was extremely nervous throughout the filming and co-star Carrie Elwes noted that he was visibly sweating during the Battle of Wits scene. He said to Rob Reiner that he didn't feel he'd get the part because he really isn't Sicilian. Rob assured him that his voice was exactly the same as Vicini's in the book. So Andre the Giant needed an ATV to get him to shooting locations, and he was always trying to get Carrie Elwes to drive it. Elwes eventually relented, but on his first time driving it, he hit a patch of rocks as he was shifting gears, which caused his foot to slip from the clutch and eventually became wedged between the pedal and the rock. His left big toe was bent straight down and was broken, which he tried to conceal from Rob Reiner. Eventually, he had to confess, and they worked shooting around his swollen toe and his limp, You can notice it in the scene right before Buttercup pushes him down the hill. He sits down with his leg extended, 
because he wasn't able to put any weight on the foot. In the next scene, when he and Buttercup head into the fire swamp, he has a strange hop in his step. All right, someone that always has a hop in her step and is very cheerful is Lindsay. And she joins me to relive the glory days of watching this film as a kid because we are children of the 80s. So let's get her take on it and does it still hold up for her? And then I'll come back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. We are back with Lindsay. Welcome back. Hey, Brian. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me again. As you wish, we have you on. So I asked you if you want to do this this film, and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I like this one. And uh, so the obvious question is, do you remember if you saw this in the theater when it first came out? Because it didn't do that well in the theater when it was first released. I did not see it in the theater. So was it cable or video? I don't recall, to be honest with you, but I was probably eight years old. Right, but we were about Maybe the same nine. age. Okay. Yeah, when you know, I saw it. So I think I already said this on my part, but I first saw this, they showed it to us after school, like in the auditorium for some reason. Oh. Which was great. Like Interesting. I, and I was just like the Fred Savage character. I'm like, ugh, I don't want to watch a fairy tale. Like, that's the worst thing. But I think the smartest thing they did with this film is they started with Peter Falk and fred savage because it gets you into it most of the boys are just like fred savage and so you being a girl were you immediately drawn to this because of the fairy tale angle well it's probably more interesting maybe to a girl than to a little boy but i thought fred savage played it perfectly right just this like not feeling well like irritated really well played little chicago boy I, right away i was like i bet he's from chicago just the way he's it acting is. and everything and of course he's got all the chicago memorabilia in the room and he's wearing a bear's jersey and everything and he's got fridge a perry refrigerator mm-hmm. perry on his wall but um yeah i mean i think that that's kind of how it would be for a kid that age like oh man i don't want to listen to this crap well this film is deceptively good for for men and boys because it is actually pretty violent it is somewhat scary and it's not just a fairy tale but you hear the term princess bride and truly you can't judge a book by its cover on this yeah the the name is quite deceptive i i would agree there's so much more to it than what the name implies so when you first saw it was this something you immediately got or is it something you saw over and over and you liked it no, I, I mean, I think I got it. I understood what it was supposed to be, and I appreciated it. I liked the the humor, and I thought it was funny, but not the type of funny that you're supposed to slapsticky like crack up at. I mean, it's funny, but yeah. and and it's very subtle and it's in its humor and smart, but it's not like ridiculous. And I guess I appreciate that about it. And there's moments of certain scenes that stick with you mm-hmm. that you always remember okay well you brought it up what are the mo- well, actually before we get into that we just recently rewatched it you had probably hadn't seen this what in 15 20 years easily did it hold up as well watching it as adult yeah i remembered thinking that the uh king seemed scarier when i watched it the first time and now he just seems like a doof yeah prince, so like he, yeah he doesn't seem very or the prince rather not the king yeah. he's like he seemed like a king yeah but like he i remember thinking he seemed more scary like when he threw her behind the door and locked her in like i remember i remember thinking how awful that was back then and now i'm like this guy's an idiot mm-hmm. so it it plays a little softer maybe uh, you know later on uh, than it did when i was a kid but I think it generally held up pretty well. I mean, I still remember a lot of the 
the scenes of the the one where the Mandy Patinkin character, um, Inigo Montoya is, you know, searching for revenge for his father and the line that he continually repeats and his his accent uh, kind of stuck with me and who can forget Andre the Giant? I yeah. mean, he's just, you know, I watched him wrestle, you know, when oh, yeah. I was young in the, in the early 80s. And so he was always, uh, you know, someone that you could not forget. Wallace Shawn, you know, as <laughs> one of the early evil, you know, uh, captors, uh, kidnappers. He's kind of s- like thinks he's super smart, but he's kind of a dum-dum. Uh, I love that. And yeah, most of it held up really well. I mean, seeing scenes like that fire swamp is like a little campy and dumb now more so than but it was when scary I watched as a kid. it. But as a kid, it was. Yeah. But in general, I think the film held up really well. Well, I remember I was prime age watching WWF at the time. So Andre the Giant definitely was a draw for oh, yeah. me. So seeing him, I was like, oh, okay. I, I, it is funny looking back. I was exactly like the Fred Savage character where... As the story went along, he got more and more into it. I again, I love how they kept interjecting the modern day and and Peter Falk and and how I just appreciate you know the grandfather character so much more as I got older. Yeah, that was really well done. I really appreciated um, the interplay between grandson and grandpa. And grandpa sounds a lot like me. I hate to admit it, yeah. but he really does. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Do you, you want me to read the story? Uh, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty much the grandpa, yeah. uh, which I love. And I love Peter Falk. Anyway, so I just thought... Um, and this is before Fred Savage hit a big about a year later. It with, is. Uh, Wonder, Wonder Years. Years. Yeah. It, it just has great nostalgia to it. And it feels, you know, it kind of feels like an old warm hug when you watch it again it just it reminds you of being young especially because we were very close in age to fred savage in the film and it's kind of a trip to see you know the robin wrights and the carrie ellis's and the mandy patinkins uh, even christopher guest Mm -hmm. looking so super young young. it's kind of weird almost well i mean i i liked how when we were growing up this is pretty much the first time we saw most of these characters uh but for somebody now watching it who maybe haven't haven't seen it they're thinking oh carrie elwes is saw and robin wright might be forrest gump yeah or you know uh Carol, I don't, they wouldn't even know who Billy Crystal and, and Carol Kane are. And probably, Andy Patagon hit it huge with Homeland. That's right. And he was also in Criminal Minds. So, yeah. um, and then, you know, Chris Sarandon was already famous when people knew him for Fright Night. So, yeah, I mean, this it really is an amazing cast. It was great. It was well done. And I think that they they really got the humor right. The, the brand that they were going for was mm-hmm. unique. And it was certainly unique at the time. And they mastered that brand. Uh, Rob Reiner really crushed that. This movie could have gone a million ways to Sunday. And it kind of, it could have been stupid. If you really think about it, this mm-hmm. could have been very badly done. Yeah. But it wasn't. No. And I think that's why it's kind of a, a timeless classic in a sense is that it it could have gone so wrong but instead it went oh so right you know and it's probably a very thin line between those two things well again this is another perfect example and we mentioned this a lot on the podcast and especially in the 80s there were movies that just didn't do well in the box office but they found new life in home video and cable why don't in your th- what is your opinion why don't you think initially this did well in the theater I don't 
it certainly didn't have star power, I wouldn't say. At like, the these time, people yeah. were not not known, some mm-hmm. of them, like Christopher Guest and uh, Chris Sarandon. And, um, do you think maybe it had to do with the title? Maybe the title, but it certainly wasn't, like, filled with blockbuster stars from that no. time. You had complete unknowns, like Robin Wright, who became a star in her own right, yeah. but not before this. This was li- yeah. literally her first film, and Carrie Ellis was uh, mm-hmm. coming into his own as well. And so I think that was a factor. The name could have been a factor. I think at the time that this was in the theater, the, the, the yeah. craving for film was not like this. It mm-hmm. was either the John Hughes era stuff, mm-hmm. or it was starting to get into this... Or action. Or action, or this like more serious realm of like... Brat Pack moving forward, like you mm-hmm. start getting the St. Elmo's fire and the bright mm-hmm. lights, big city, and mm-hmm. you start, and you've got huge actors in those of the days, and I don't know, that's sort of what film felt more like at that time. Mm-hmm. I feel like this stood out in a weird way. It was almost Mel Brooksian, like you said. Oh, very. Yeah. Which, if you didn't know, you would think this is a Mel Brooks. Yeah, you would, and it just it didn't fit the time. I feel like it was kind of a weird choice. In 1987, given what this point in the 80s started looking like, Mm -hmm. it was just oddly placed. And so maybe it could only be appreciated after the fact when it did go to cable and video and stuff like this started living in perpetuity and people would show it to their kids and watch it again and again. Um, It kind of became a cult classic. Yeah, it absolutely did. And I, I, I know most people my age have seen it. And that's what's interesting. And so, as, again, I think that's the power of home video and cable, where these films didn't get lost. No, and you made a good point when we've interviewed for much, much older films from the 30s, oh, 40s, yeah. 50s. Um, people didn't think back then that this film would ever be seen again, because mm-hmm. back then there was literally no mechanism to do so. That's like. Right. It was in a theater, and that was it. So they're finishing films as actors and filmmakers, and like, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it goes back into theater, where else is it going to go? The fact that something could live on and be generationally relevant is hard to imagine, mm-hmm. right? But I don't know if the filmmakers thought about that. Maybe it's too hard to think about things like that. Like you don't think you're making a cult classic when you're making well, a cult classic. Like, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't they, want to make a cult yeah, classic. I'm pretty sure the Evil Dead people didn't think yeah, that they repo were making man. right. Like yeah. these came. I'm pretty sure they didn't think that at the time. No. But then of course, look what they ended up with. And this is a little bit of that. Like yeah. they couldn't have um, predicted the magic that they were making. But if you do look back and you look at the time, this stood out amongst a lot of the other things that were kind of popping at this time and it made it unique what's also interesting is today you see a lot of um not reissues but they re-release it to theaters to go see movies like this you'll you'll go and see the princess bride at a movie theater even though you've seen it a million times but it just shows how really unappealing new movies are so even something like this they can't even get this right anymore i would really be bummed if i thought that they were going to try to remake this film. We just had a conversation the other day about how truly disturbed I would be if they touched films like The Goonies. Oh, yeah. I mean, do not, I repeat, (laughs) do not 
touch the classics. This right. just can't be made better than it was because there was something special and magical about film at that time that you can't recapture. Another one that they did, I mean, this is a personal one for me, one that they did try to mess with and it just, there was absolutely no way to recapture it is The NeverEnding Story. Yeah. I know there's lots of people that will argue that that wasn't a great film and it's so weird that Wolfgang Peterson is the one that made that and you can so tell it is such a German and non-US based film when you watch it again and again yeah. as an adult but and it was tried to like they tried to pass it off as that sure but any attempts to recapture what that was that sort of weird magical fancy it it fell completely and utterly flat because you just couldn't recreate that. No. Now, even with the CGI and all the stuff, it would look mind-blowing. But not as, like, the... But you, the yeah. camp is part of what made it, it amazing. Yeah. And it made it charming. And and the idea of, of touching it just is kind of anathema. And, like, mm. I can't even say I really watched what they tried to do with it. I mean, I just couldn't stomach the idea that anyone would mess with it. And yeah. this is another one. Like, I, I don't can't. Don't touch this. Don't then. touch this. Yeah. Well, one, you're never going to get an Andre the Giant. Um, yeah, you could get someone else to play. Well, they'll make it out of CGI. They'll take a regular, sure. well-known oh, actor and yeah. turn this person It'll into a giant person. the dude, for, Dave Bautista or yeah. somebody like that. Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. Dave Bautista would be exactly who I think I, they yeah. would pick for this. Right, which is too obvious. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the Carrie Elwes character would be one of the, like... Yeah, be Chris what, what, Pratt. Or yeah, that. or one of those... And you look, know, yeah, it just it wouldn't big be big action hero. You're not guys. gonna find someone better like than Mandy. Hemsworths, one of them. You're not gonna find anybody better than Mandy Patankin playing, you know, Montoya. Uh, yeah, and Christopher Guest, and Christopher Guest is so perfect. So yeah, I and mean, just leave it alone. Don't touch the Goonies. Yeah, they already tried to do it with Footloose. They try to do it with the Karate Kid. They try, and yeah, they'll make money, but that doesn't mean that it's actually. There's no way there's I'm no drawn. Redeeming value no, for it. no. So this is one that I hope that will be left as it is. Yep. I think it's really special in its own right and very unique for the time and absolutely worth watching. And I can understand when someone would maybe sit down to watch this and say, you know what, guys, I didn't really, it wasn't that great. Mm -hmm. But you've got to take into account a lot of things when you're thinking about this and not the least of which is when was this coming out? What what time in the the world were we in that decade? How does this stand apart? I mean, most people... I, I, have, I don't see how anyone would not see this as well, a good movie. Well, it's a little weird. I mean, let's be honest. But well, it's what's, fun. It is, but, you know, you're... We're ageist about this, and I think we have to be really honest yeah. that... And in our mid-40s, we're looking at things through a nostalgia lens yeah. that a 25-year-old is not going to have the context to look through when watching this. Yeah. They're going to be pitting their opinions of this against things they grew up with, which is stuff we were watching in our you know, early to mid-20s. That's fair. That's fair. So I do think that that's possible that someone who's half our age would be like, what the hell? Yeah, but they're, at the they're same watching Crapopolis. Yeah, but at the same time, it's... You have to th try to think through the lens of when this came out That's and fair. how yeah. it stood out amongst so many other things at the time. And when you really think about film that you appreciated or stood out to you over the course of your life, a lot of times it's something that 
upset the apple cart at the time. Like, yeah. again, I've pointed to this film a couple of times, but I will never, ever forget what happened when Napoleon Dynamite came out. Sure. Or The Blair Witch Project. Mm -hmm. You might argue neither of these are amazing films. But what you can't argue is that at the time that those things were fresh and they hit the theater, nobody was doing what no, they were no, doing. That's how you do it. And it lives just on as a legend because nothing after it, and it was tried to, you know, people tried to copy it multiple times. You can't, you can't do it. Yeah. It's just, it's been there, done that. They got there first. They rule. Nana, nana, poo poo. You're out of luck. And this film's kind of that. It's kind of is that the catchphrase the poo poo of the yeah. mid '80s, right? Yeah. Like you can't do this again. You can't. No. All right. So to wrap up, what is there anything about this you would have changed after watching it now? Oh, that's a good question. What would I have changed about it? Probably not. I mean, the dialogue is actually way better than than you remember. You remember yeah. because you're older now. Well, that's why the, the yeah. film is kind of it's great for adults for the dialogue. But the kids like the fencing and the the, the you know the the animals or whatever the the uh, rodents of unusual size things like that <laughs> and and the silliness of it. But I think yeah. that the quick dialogue is what the adults love. It was very smartly yeah. written, mm -hmm. and the actors pulled off their parts in that. They didn't really to it. a T. No, yeah. they knew who they were supposed to be, and. Yeah. It seems they also, because you had a lot of comedians in this film, they also really did a great job improvising on the spot and kind of making characters their own. Like, you had told me, I did not know this, that the uh, comedian, was his name Peter Cook? Oh, yeah, Peter Marowitz. Yeah, yeah, he was the guy that was doing the ceremony, yeah. like marrying Buttercup to yeah. Humperdinck. My God, those names. Yeah. And he had this speech impediment, right? And nobody yeah. expected he was going to do that. And you In said, the like, the whole cast cracked up. They, like, couldn't, they had to, like, stop right. filming to yeah. kind of, like, compose themselves. Yeah. And the film was sort of chuck full of, like, little weird surprises like that that I could see an adult at the time who watched this with kids really, like, appreciating. Right. So I don't think there was much I really would have changed and I even thought that you know oh look at the scenes between Fred Savage and um Columbo yeah. <laughs> I just call him Columbo uh that those would be kind of like cheesy after but they really weren't no. they were actually really good like I wouldn't change anything about the way Fred Savage no. and Peter Falk acted those scenes so honestly I think this is one of those rare pieces of mid-80s magic that you just leave alone yeah, that, and we love, if you're an 80s nostalgia person, go back and look at Fred Savage's room. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. It's I like had that He-Man doll. I mean, the Cheetos bag alone, I, I don't even like Cheetos. And I was, like, yeah. fixated <laughs> on, oh, my God, I remember being his age, and I remember seeing that in the grocery store, and, and that's Nintendo, what stuff looked like. He was playing the Nintendo baseball game. That looks like the baseball game you play. Uh, it's not Yes, it does. Not even close. Yeah, it really does. All right, nanny great. nanny boo boo. <laughs> it's a great way to close. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain, Captain Video. 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 Video.